We begin this week with a quick story. I first heard this story on, you guessed it, The West Wing. Now, I think this is the third story I've used from The West Wing on the podcast. But you should know three West Wing references out of 16 episodes is actually relatively small for me. If you were to press me by asking what my area of expertise is, it wouldn't be liturgy, theology, biblical studies, or postmodern philosophy. It would actually be inane West Wing trivia. Still, I think this story can serve a helpful function this week. So here goes. There's a story about a guy whose car gets stuck in a muddy hole. And a farmer comes along and says he'll pull the car out of the mud, but he's gonna have to charge 50 bucks because this is the 10th time he's had to pull the car out of the mud today. The driver says, wow, when do you have time to plow your land, at night? The farmer says, no, no, nighttime is when I fill the hole with water. In this particular episode of The West Wing, President Bartlett, a Democrat, suggests that Republicans are the ones trying to rescue people from a hole filled with water that they themselves actually filled. I'm certain that is a good analogy sometimes. I'm also certain that the analogy works the other way sometimes. In fact, perhaps Republicans and Democrats actually serve as each other's holes quite often. But obviously the reason for this analogy has nothing to do with politics. We are waiting for a Messiah, waiting for a Savior. But actually, the first diagnostic question for this particular week is, how much has the church been pulling us out of a hole they themselves have dug and filled with water? I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Literature. Postmodern Liturgy exists in a couple different forms. This podcast is a chance to reflect on the weekly readings in the liturgical calendar the week before they actually occur. So, this podcast comes out on Mondays and uses the readings for the following Sunday. Our distinctive is that we try to apply a variety of postmodern lenses to the text, especially offering space for deconstruction and doubt. I also write and record all the music specifically for this podcast. You can engage in more material at postmodernliturgy.com. You can also follow us on social media, at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram, and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. And if you're so inclined, you can join our wonderful group of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. This is the season of Advent. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but quickly, we're not to Christmas yet. And there's a reason for that. As we discussed in the last episode, we are preparing in a very specific way. We're also waiting for a Messiah. Symbolically, in that we are honoring the actual rhythm of the church calendar by not skipping right to Christmas, but also literally because we anticipate a rule of God that is not fully here yet. In the first week, we talked about some of the specifics of the just and merciful reign of God we are waiting and preparing for. 
This week, we get into some precise details about what Messiah we are waiting for. Before I say more, let's go to the readings for this week. Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of Yahweh the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. God will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. God will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the Holy Way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away.
Psalm 146, 5 through 10. Happy are those whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh watches over the strangers. God upholds the orphan and the widow. But the way of the wicked God brings to ruin. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise Yahweh. James 5, verses 7 through 10. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You must also be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another, so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Matthew 11, verses 2 through 11. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? 
Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. There's an incredibly clear thread that runs through the readings this week, and I think it's worth focusing exclusively on. In Isaiah, we hear of some sort of great redemption that is coming. This reconciliation is so small that it's worth mentioning a single blossom of one plant. It's small enough that it's worth mentioning relatively small impediments like blindness, but it extends so broadly that all people are included. Dry land is included, which, by the way, was a consequence for Adam in the garden. This reconciliation covers every detail. God will reconcile all things. But some interesting details are mentioned. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. Then there's the passage in Psalm 146. It sounds celebratory, but it's celebratory in a specific way. Scholars suggest this psalm was written by a Judean congregation in exile. An earthly kingdom kingdom had failed them, and they are sort of attempting to praise their way out of it by calling out to Yahweh once again to be their king. And what are some of the things they praise Yahweh for? Yahweh sets the prisoner free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. In Matthew, how does Jesus prove to John that he is the Messiah? 
He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. In all of this, we get a remarkable remarkable amount of specificity about what sort of Messiah we are waiting for. While the Messiah's work in the world may not be limited to this group of 10 or so things, it has been quite clear that the Messiah will do these things. Good news for the poor, for example. I'd like to suggest the possibility that modern day Christians have made the name Jesus the Hebrew equivalent of the word Messiah. I think we know that Jesus, who is shown to be the Messiah here, does not deliver on all the expectations that the Hebrew people had for him. Take Palm Sunday, for example. And a lot of church language for Jesus is quite vague, suggesting that whatever problem you have, Jesus will fix it. Well, that's a mechanic, not a Messiah. In this season of Advent, and even in this week's readings, we have heard a number of different words that all actually end up meaning roughly the same thing. Ransom, reign, judge, salvation. But they only mean the same thing in the right context. When God is making all things new, God is the architect of this plan. And since God is the architect, this process of redemption happens according to the character of God not according to our desires. Does this make sense? Maybe not yet. So let me ask a couple questions. What if Jesus came to save you from your iPhone, not your income to debt ratio? I have an iPhone, by the way, if that helps. What if Jesus came to save you from your savings account, not your sexuality? What if Jesus came to save you from your patriotism, not your car troubles, and so on. This actually isn't a matter of our view of salvation being too big. I'm not trying to limit your view of salvation. I'm trying to expand it. Let's return to the question I asked at the beginning of the podcast. How much has the church been pulling us out of a hole they themselves have dug and filled with water? I ask because I've been around a lot of churches, and my suggestion is that it happens quite often. Not all churches do this, but many do. They dig the hole right around the altar area. Very generically speaking, in many scenarios, church becomes a generic call to get right with God, or to dig deeper. Well, one could always go deeper, right? So people look inward and find something, find a hole therein. They go to the altar, they feel guilty, they pray, they feel better. They've been saved again. But the next week the same thing happens, and so on and so on. Well, what's wrong with that? Isn't self-examination good? Yes, self-examination is good. That's not what this is. This is shame. And this is relief addiction. So the next week, when the same thing comes to mind and the same actions are taken, people start thinking they must be inherently bad if this thing can't be fixed. Furthermore, 
Such a person is now indebted, not to Christ, but to this institution, and at the mercy of the values of this institution that offered the space to get out of the hole that they dug. You have a God-shaped hole, and it just so happens that the God we articulate is just the right size. But really, why is any of this bad? Well, for one, shame isn't good. For two, when your church model does roughly the same thing as an Oxycontin pill, you're going to lose a lot of customers to the real thing. For three, not a lot of people are confessing systematic racism, economic injustice, or pollution. But most of all, this is not the Messiah we see when we look at the readings this week. Don't get me wrong, this isn't the first time this sort of thing has happened. This is pretty close to the problem Israel had over and over again. The covenant with Abraham happened so that all the nations of the world would be blessed. Then Israel would stop taking care of other people, and they would find themselves in captivity. They would cry out for salvation. God would save them. And then they would start the circle over again. In the readings this week, we see a great deal of specificity about the gospel that the Messiah has come to bring. Sight for the blind, hearing for the deaf, etc. But as I said, I'm trying to enlarge our notion of salvation, not make it smaller. Erdman's commentary points out the expanding nature of these particular characteristics quite well. So I'd like to quote directly from that if that's okay. This particular section is addressing the Isaiah 35 passage. Quote, the disabilities described in 35 verses 5 through 6 indicate more than a physical condition since the words for blind, lame, deaf, and dumb are almost identical to the names of four types of heavenly being. With wordplay characteristic of the Isaianic style, we see here the ending of their power as their victims are released from disability. The words the blind and the lame appear in 2 Samuel 5-6, concealing the guardian deities of old Jerusalem, the watchers and the threshold guardians. The dumb is a word which would look the same as the gods who are judged in Psalm 58-1, and the deaf is the same word as for those who practice magic arts in Isaiah 3.3. Jesus alludes to this prophecy in his reply to the messengers from John the Baptist in Luke 7.22. That the healings were largely of these four disabilities is no coincidence. They were acted parables, signs, like Ezekiel's river from the temple. In short, The passages this week beautifully describe God's cosmic plan of reconciliation in words that speak to individual encumbrances while at the same time expanding to a reconciliation of all of heaven and earth. In other words, this week is everything. I know I walked you down a long winding path today, but here's the overall point. In this season of Advent, Allow your view of the coming Messiah's work to be expanded to absolutely everything. Don't limit it to small behavioral issues. Many of those things might be good to work out, but God's work of reconciliation is not based on individual convictions. Fortunately, it's much more than that. If it it occurs to you that you should stop smoking, 
that's probably a good idea. It's not good for you. But don't just weep at the altar waiting for Jesus to come deliver you. Go talk to someone who can help. I'm willing to account for the fact that God's work of deliverance is so detailed that it includes you personally. I'm just not willing to limit it to that only. May you feel the birth of the Messiah drawing nearer to you this Advent season. And may that presence also expand your view of deliverance to absolutely everything around you. Thanks for joining me again this week. I'd love if you'd join us online. We're at www.postmodernliturgy.com. On social media, we are at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. I'd also love if you consider supporting our work for free by sharing and rating and reviewing the podcast or financially at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. If you visit our Patreon site, you can see several great benefits for our supporters. Thank you once again for joining me, and as always, enjoy the tension. <laughs>